Well, we are continuing with First Timothy, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Um, as we have noted last week, Paul urged Timothy to stay on at the city of Ephesus to serve as pastor of the church there. The church in Ephesus was a key church because the church was uh, because the city was an important city in the Roman Empire. Paul had spent several years there on his third missionary journey. But it was not only a key church, it was also a church that had some significant pressing problems. In fact, five years earlier, before this letter was written, uh, the Lord revealed to Paul that false teachers, whom he called savage wolves, were going to rise up within the church, do great harm to the congregation. And Paul also said much of the problem was actually going to come from within the elders within the church. Well, to help the church, Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to help to uh, encourage them in multiple ways. That's why he was a prisoner uh, in Rome. And then to further help the church deal with the problems that they were having, Paul sent the one he described as his true child in the faith. He sent to them Timothy. And Paul tells Timothy that he was writing this letter in order to make it clear, this is from chapter 3, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of truth, of the truth. So he's writing on God's purpose for the church and how his church should be properly ordered and led. And that's what makes this such an important letter. Um, God loves his church and wants to see it function according to his purposes. He begins the letter by making it clear that he speaks, spoke as an apostle according to the commandment of God and of, uh, of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, and you really can't get any higher authority than that. So Paul's words need to be heard. His teaching needs to be listened to by Timothy and by the church as well. His words need to be understood really by Christians in all generations and in all places. He began by telling Timothy to deal with these men who were teaching what he described as strange doctrines, to teach them that these, this was not consistent with Scripture. This was not consistent with the purpose of, uh, of, of, of what needed to be taught in the, in, this, in the church. He says the proper goal of instruction is love. And when he says that, he's especially talking about what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that was to be the context. And so these verses um, that we're looking at this morning, actually, Paul continues to explain to Timothy the importance of teaching sound doctrine in the church. And actually, this is one of the important, most important traits of a properly ordered church. So let me go and read 1 Timothy. We'll go ahead and start with verse 5. We ended there last week, but it's connected with what we're looking at today. So let me start in verse 5 and read through verse 11. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There are three main things that we're going to be focusing on in these verses. Uh, first, we will look at the danger of swerving away from gospel love as the goal of instruction. Second, we're going to look at the right and proper use of God's law. And then third, we're going to see how the law of God actually points to and is consistent with the gospel of Christ. So look again in verses 5 to 7. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So our first main point is this. The danger in swerving away from the pursuit of love for God and for people as the goal for instruction is that the teaching will not be truly helpful. So already in the opening verses, the Apostle Paul is giving great emphasis to the need for sound doctrine in the church. He is making it clear this is something that just really can't be compromised. So whatever is taught needs to be taught from the, from the goal of helping and encouraging the listeners to grow in love for the Lord. It's a love that should include all of our mind, as Jesus said. So there has to be teaching that includes information that is true, uh, truth that needs to be understood. It's also truth that needs to be embraced with all our heart, the love of the Lord God with all of our heart. So there's an affectionate embrace of the scriptures that are taught. And then that truth is to be expressed with all of our strength, with actions that we do. So there should be practical responses to this kind of love. That's going to include praise and worship. It's going to include giving up thanks. It's going to include reaching out to others uh, to help with the gospel, just with encouraging, caring for one another. And if this teaching is done from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, there's going to be a genuineness about it, a realness about it. There's going to be a desire to truly please and honor the Lord in all that's done. And there's going to be a conscious effort to be faithful to what the Word of God says. There are some things that are involved in having the goal of instruction uh, being love for God and his people. So to effectively encourage Timothy as he pastors the church in Ephesus, he tells him he's going to have to address these teachers within the church who are not following that goal that he just laid out for him. So verse 6 and 7 give us a number of reasons on why this is important in the church. So first thing is this. Those who have no heart for the biblical gospel will not see good fruit come from their instruction. Paul says in verse 6 that teaching that strays from a real love for God and for people will only lead to fruitless discussion. It won't be helpful. It may give the hearers some really some interesting information, but it's not going to make any difference in how they live their Christian life. In verse 4, he spoke of myths and endless genealogies. This is apparently connected with teachings from Jewish rabbis that could be described as novel and even fanciful curiosities. And they may be interesting, but they would not be helpful for Christians who are seeking to grow in their love for the Lord. Now, I said here that 
having no heart for the biblical gospel. That's really the context. He doesn't use that word right there, but he does down in verse 11, which is, which is part of this context, because sound doctrine and the gospel are hand in hand. You really can't have a genuine love for the Lord. You really can't have a genuine love for people without faith in the gospel of Christ. We are all sinners by nature. God's law does require us to love the Lord with all of our heart, like we've just referred to. But in our heart, in reality, we don't really have a real desire for that by nature. By nature, we are all self-centered. We really don't like other people telling us what to do, and that includes God. So as we will see in verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I mean, it's just such a hopeful verse, and it applies to all of us. It applies to any person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, our heart is changed. And one of the main changes is that we're given a love for the one true God. We have lots of growing to do in that love. Uh, That's why there continues to be instruction that will direct us toward that pursuit of love for God and for people. And if the instruction we hear doesn't help us, then it's unfruitful. Paul understood the church is the people of God, people whose sins have been forgiven, whose hearts have been changed, people who have a desire to grow in their love for the Lord and and, and and their love for other people. But we all need help in that growth. Nobody has reached just perfection, even even who are close to perfection in that. So Paul wants to make sure he keeps that goal of instruction in his mind because God, he wants God to be pleased with the fruit that comes in this church. Then we're given another reason why having love as the goal for instruction is important. From verse 7, Paul points this out. A desire to be a teacher of the God's word will not take place if one is heading in the wrong direction with their life. Verse 7, he says, they want to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Well, the people Paul is speaking of, they do have a desire to teach God's law. And I think it'd be safe to say to teach God's word in general. And that's a good desire to have. That's not a bad thing. That's a good desire. One of the spiritual gifts that God gives to his church is the gift of teaching. But there was a problem here. They wanted to be teachers, but they didn't want to do it God's way. They had their own ideas. It may even be that their hearts really maybe had not been truly changed. Maybe they weren't, didn't have a genuine faith in the Lord. Um, And so in reality, they couldn't teach rightly because maybe they're not even truly Christians. Or it could be that they were genuine believers. They just had some things that had derailed them, so to speak, kind of got them off track and They're given their time to just various curiosities um, instead of what was really the main thing. It could be that sin had taken over in their life in certain areas. It could be a maverick attitude, just kind of wanting to do things their own way, whatever that might be. But whatever it was, they have strayed from the love of God, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, that they're heading the wrong direction in their life. So because they're heading in the wrong direction, Their desire to teach or instruct others in the things of God, it's just not going to happen. It's not going to be reality. They may find some people who will listen, but it's not going to be profitable for either the one who is doing the teaching or the one who is listening to the teaching. There's nothing here that 
Paul doesn't specifically mention, but I think it's, it's at least implied, he is getting Timothy to focus on the teachers to make sure that they are teaching properly. But every individual Christian has the equal obligation to be careful how they hear. In Acts 17, uh, the people of Berea are described. They're described as being noble-minded. There was something exceptional about them. And there's two just pretty brief descriptions that describe what they were like. One was this. They had an eagerness to receive the word of God. So as Paul and those who were with him were teaching, they were eager to hear what he had to say. But then it also says they examined the scriptures daily to make sure those things were true. They had a responsibility, yes, to hear, but also check it out. Make sure that's really what those, the, the verses say. Make sure that's really what the scriptures are teaching. Every single believer has that same obligation. We can't just kind of trust whatever the speaker is saying and say, well, I know that guy. I must be right. No, we have an obligation to actually check it out and to make sure that it's right. Well, next Paul wants us to make sure that we don't downplay, that, that he doesn't think that we're downplaying, that he's downplaying the importance of God's law. He's not doing that. He says in verse 8, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And then Paul gives some examples of how to do that. So our second main point is this. God's law is good and profitable if it is used according to the purpose for which it was given. Romans seven twelve, Paul says, the law is holy, commandment is holy, righteous, and good. There were people in Ephesus who were misusing the law as a source of just allegorizing and just kind of uh, bringing mystic ideas along with it. And that's not what God gave the law for. Paul says it must be used lawfully. What he means is it needs to be used according to its nature, according to what it's designed for. He then says the law was not made for a righteous person. Now, it could be saying that somebody who's already living in a way that's outwardly upright, I mean, that, that could fit there. But I think it's more likely that he's referring to the fact that every Christian is righteous by faith in Christ. Um, we know that none of us can live perfectly according to what God's law requires of us. But Jesus did. He perfectly obeyed every law in every detail, not just in the things he did and said, but in the motive behind what he did and said. And so when we trust Jesus Christ for salvation, our sin is forgiven. But that's not all. We are also given Jesus' record of righteousness. It's imputed. It's put to our account for us. So, in, so as Christians, we stand before God as people who are not only forgiven, but are also perfectly righteous in Christ. And since it's Christ's righteousness, it can't be improved on. The day you first put your faith in Christ, you're as righteous before God as you're ever going to be. You can live another 50 years in the Christian life, and you'll grow in your Christian life, but you'll never be more righteous. That's because the righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. It's not my goodness. It's not how many commandments did I keep today? How long did I read my Bible today? How many minutes did I pray or how many hours did I pray? Whatever. It's not based on that. Our obedience is important, but the righteousness is settled. And I think that's kind of what he's talking about here. The law is not going to make you more righteous than you already are if you have faith in Christ. 
so it's another way to say the law can't save. Nobody is saved by their works. The law can't save anyone. That's not what it was intended to do. Well, what is the purpose of the law? Well, one is this. God's law is to be used to make it clear that all those who break the law are under God's condemnation. They're under God's condemnation. In verse 9 and 10, Paul gives quite a descriptive list of who the law is for. He says, realize the fact the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, he begins by saying generally that the law is not for those who are lawless or rebellious. To be lawless is to be actively against God's law. It's to be purposefully disobedient. Rebellious is similar. Uh, It can be described as being self-willed. Anyone who is lawless and rebellious is someone who is clearly guilty as they stand before God. Their very life shows them to be one of God's enemies. Every single person, every one of us, is going to have to stand before God and give an account of our life. Well, if God describes you as one who is lawless and rebellious, then you stand before him condemned. You may think you have a good excuse for being disobedient, but you don't. None of us do. You can't say, well, it's because of how I was raised. In other words, it's my parents' fault. No, it's not. You're the one who made the choices you made. You can say, well, I guess I really didn't even fully understand the difference in right and wrong. Yes, you do. We've all been given a conscience. We have an understanding of what's right and wrong. You can say, well, I live in a culture that was just kind of, it was just more common to rebel against you because that's what everybody else did. There is no excuse that's going to make any difference. There isn't one. We all stand condemned before God. The law of God makes that very clear, and the wages of sin is death and eternal death. And then, just to make sure we understand, Paul gives examples from the Ten Commandments just to make sure it's clear. First, he speaks of those who are ungodly. This violates the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Second, he speaks of sinners. This seems to be speaking specifically of you shall not make any graven images. In other words, he's dealing with idolatry. Third, he speaks of being unholy. This violates the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Fourth is the word profane. This is one who desecrates what is holy. And the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Fifth, Paul speaks of those who kill their fathers or mothers. This is an extreme example of violating honor your father and mother that it may go well with you. Sixth is murderers. This violates you shall not kill. Then in verse 10, we have the seventh description, immoral men and homosexuals. This speaks of fornication, sexual impurity. The word for homosexuals here can also be translated as sodomites, 
literally is defined as one who defiles themselves with men. This violates, you shall not commit adultery. The eighth description is kidnappers or man-stealers. This violates, you shall not steal. Ninth is liars and perjurers. This, of course, violates, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, with this list, what Paul seems to be doing is dealing with some of the most flagrant violations of each commandment. Because then he adds, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. In other words, I've given you a few examples, but there's a whole lot more. There is a whole lot more that I could say about this. People may hear a list like this and say, you know, that kind of hurts my feelings. <laughs> That's kind of insensitive to be able to point, thing, to point things out like that, isn't it? The reality is nobody can, can come away from this list and feel good about themselves. You just can't. If you do feel good about yourself, there's a big problem. It's not meant to make us feel good about ourselves. The law makes it clear that we are sinners. That's what it does. And because of that, we all stand condemned before God. That's one of the ways that God uses his good law lawfully. A second lawful use of a law is this. God's law is to be a restraint on those who would do wrong. Part of that is the fact that he's given us a conscience. Thank the Lord that he's given us a conscience. There are many evil temptations and desires that are never acted upon because of someone's conscience. Our conscience reveals the work of the law written on our hearts. Romans 2 talks about that. We instinctively, therefore, know the difference in right and wrong. We don't always follow that. But there are times that the conscience does get our attention and we don't do what comes into our mind to do. Praise God for that. That's one of the ways that the law is a restraint. The law also restrains when it's something that is not only morally wrong, but it's also illegal. It's a crime. And if it's illegal, people are restrained because if they do it and they get caught, they know there's going to be consequences. So that's another way the law is a restraint. Some of the words listed here find their way into civil laws, which is a good thing. Romans 13 we are told that civil magistrates are God's servants. The word that actually can be translated God's ministers. And what they're to do is reward those or encourage those who do what is good and punish those who do what is evil. Well, who decides what's good and evil? God does. In this list, it's clear that killing one's father or mother or murdering someone else, that's not only a sin. That's a crime. And the fact that it's a crime is a restraint. Now, it's not politically correct to say this, but it's biblically accurate. In the Old Testament law, both adultery and homosexual acts were not only sins, they were also crimes. That's what the Bible says. That certainly served as a restraint. Kidnapping, man-stealing, is a sin and also a crime. If you go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me of kidnapping, well, there's another step. You don't leave it with that. 
what did you do with the person? I mean, there's more. To, that's a crime. As a matter of fact, man stealing is one of the main sins and crimes that those who participated in the slave trade in our country were guilty of. Man stealing. It's also those who deal in human trafficking in our day. Same thing. And by the way, the penalty for man stealing in the law of Moses was death. I wouldn't be opposed to bringing that back, personally. And that's a great restraint, the fact that it's against the law. And of course, lying is a sin, but not every lie is a crime, unless it's done in a court setting. Then it's perjury, and then it is a crime. So we can be grateful to God for all of the evil things that have not been done because God's law was used as a restraint. Third use of the law is this. God's law is to be used to help towards the spiritual growth of believers. No one becomes a Christian because they're able to keep God's law. But God's law is still very important in the fact that it reminds us in very pointed ways how we should live in order to be pleasing to God. The psalmist, which we just finished going through Psalm 119, one of the verses there, I think it might have been verse 97 if I remember right, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I mean, what a statement. God's law is of great use to the Christian. It gives us reasons to praise God for his holiness because it expresses his holiness. God also uses his law to convict us of sin. That's a painful thing. It's an uncomfortable thing to be sure. But thank the Lord that he does that, that he convicts us of sin. Of course, at the same time, in Christ, we go to him for forgiveness. We never want to get to the place that we're comfortable with our sin. So the conviction is a good thing. For a Christian, the law of God has become the law of Christ to us. It tells us about what is involved, not only in having Jesus Christ as our Savior, but having Jesus Christ as our Lord. So Paul was giving a correction in these verses about how the law was being used wrongly. And he makes it clear at the end of verse 10 that using the law as a clear standard of right and wrong is consistent with what he describes as sound doctrine. So the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul then connects this brief exposition on the law of God he has made. He connects it with the glorious gospel as he describes it. Verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So, our final point, we see this. God's law points to the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. When Paul speaks of sound teaching, as he will multiple times in this letter, he's speaking of teaching that is in accordance with the gospel. And when the law of God is used lawfully, it will point people to the gospel for the glory of God. Well, how does this work? first thing we see is this. The law and the gospel display the character, the perfection, and the blessedness of God. I mean, the law points clearly to God's perfect holiness, as, as I've mentioned earlier. It makes it clear uh, that, God's, that God is righteous. His moral standard is always the same. I mean, human morals and values 
oftentimes change from generation to generation. Those values can even vary between cultures. But God's standard of right and wrong doesn't change. It's the same. He doesn't compromise his holiness to make things more comfortable for us. He doesn't do that. The law of God displays his holy and righteous character. It also displays his, his glorious perfection to us. But we also see God's glory portrayed in the gospel. That's the law, but in the gospel. The gospel means, as you know, good news. Well, good news is always best understood in the context of bad news. And the more badder or the more worse the bad news is, the better the good news is that we, as we see it. Well, the bad news is everything the law just pointed out to us. All of the bad stuff. And it's not the kind of thing, well, yeah, those guys really need to get their act together. I mean, it's pointed at everybody. It points at everybody. It shows us our sin. It shows us that we're guilty before God. It shows us we deserve condemnation. And that's really, really bad news. In the gospel, we see God's love. We see his grace glorified. You know this verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That glorifies a God of love, the, the love of God, toward a people who persist in being lawless and rebellious against him. He shows his favor to those who deserve the complete opposite of his favor. That's grace. His grace is great. It's greater than all our sin. His salvation is full. It's complete. I mean, by faith in Christ, we are completely forgiven of every sin. By faith in Christ, we are fully righteous. By faith in Christ, we are adopted sons and daughters of the triune God. By faith in Christ, we have eternal life. So the gospel glorifies God's character and perfections, and he gets the glory and we get the benefits. But this verse also speaks, says something unique about God that we usually don't say. It speaks of the blessed God. It's kind of easy to overlook. It's just one little word. The word, word blessed basically means happy. So verse 11, Paul is talking about the glorious good news of the happy God. John Piper said this about the verse. This is a quote on your outline. He says, a great part of God's glory is his happiness. God is full of glory. His glory is the idea of the, it's the sum total of every aspect of his character, all the perfections of his character. That's his glory displayed. When Paul thinks of God's glory, he knows that that means that God is infinitely happy. He is fullness of joy. I mean, how could he not be perfectly happy? In him is the perfection of love, of justice, of grace, of wisdom, of holiness, of truth, of mercy, of goodness. It's the perfection of all of that. How can, you, how can that not equal perfect 
happiness. And if you're a Christian, this gloriously happy God is your God. Matthew 25, 32, Jesus says, enter into the joy of your master. I don't know who the happiest person is you know, but God's happier. We are told in John 15 that Jesus lived and died so that God's joy might be in us and that our joy might be full. That's what a happy God does to sin for sinful people. So when we speak of the gospel, we are talking about the glorious good news of the happy God. And it's God's law that brings us to this amazing good news and realizing we have no other choice. But the choice we have, wow, what an amazing choice it is. To add to this, in our next point, we need to see this. The law and the gospel glorify glorify the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you speak of the gospel, you have to speak of Christ. Apart from the salvation that Jesus Christ accomplished, there is no good news for us. And this also gives further application for this idea of the blessedness, the happiness of God, because in fact, the happiness of God is first and foremost a happiness in his son. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up, up on a mountain. And while there, God lets the kingly glory of Christ shine forth. Just, it's almost like he takes the veil off. Say, look, guys, look who Jesus really is. Look at this glory. Look at his glory. We're told that his face shone like the sun. We're told that his garments became as white as light. The disciples were so overwhelmed, obviously, at what they saw. And then they hear the father say something. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples fall on their faces, terrified at the display of of the glory that was in Jesus Christ. But God, the father, took full pleasure in it. This is my son whom I am well pleased. Look at his glory. Isn't that amazing? That's happiness. He delights in the son, S-O-N, described as the sun, S-U-N, shining in its strength. We can't look at the sun shining in its strength. God can And that's a big part of eternity, by the way. Glorified bodies include eyes that can gaze at the sun like the Father did. That's part of what makes heaven heaven. Whether you know how to play a harp or not, that's got nothing to do with it, by the way. God delights in the eternal deity of his son. And so should we. We're also told in Isaiah 50 uh, Isaiah 42:1 that the father delights in the servanthood of the son. He says, "Behold my servant in whom my soul delights." 
And that's the kind of thing we should delight in too. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve. That's what he said. Highlighting his servanthood. And he served by purchasing a full and eternal salvation for all who will believe. The law and the gospel glorify the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is sound teaching according to Paul, according to scripture. And then Paul ends verse 11 by thankfully acknowledging that it's this glorious gospel of the blessed God that he has been entrusted with. He's been entrusted with upholding the truth of the gospel against all challenges. He has been entrusted with sharing the gospel so that sinners can be saved like he was. And this gospel truth is preserved for us. And therefore, we too are entrusted with it before God. What a privilege that is. I'm going to close with just this quote from Matthew Henry as we think about that. Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, Lord, what a trust. What a trust is committed to us. How much grace do we want or how much grace do we need to be found faithful in this great trust? Lord, we do thank you so much for the gospel, for the sound doctrine, for the truth. I thank you for the, th- the ways you've used your law in our lives. You've used your law to show us where we fall short. You've also used your law to kind of hold us back from doing some things that we want to do, but we know we shouldn't. I thank you for using your law in our life. But I also want to thank you, especially that you use your law to point us to Christ, to show us that we, none of us are good enough to stand before you. We need a Savior. So thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the blessed God. I don't think about this enough. I ask that you would help us to understand more fully the fact that you are a completely, perfectly happy God. And you're our God. And you invite us to enjoy that happiness, to participate in that joy. Thank you for being such a good God to us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. The law shows me that I have done lots of things that don't measure up. But I thank you that Jesus Christ paid the price for salvation. And I want to receive him as my Savior. I want to follow Jesus as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off. Or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.